Well, it's a great privilege to be here this morning and to uh, join with the other speakers. And I feel particular pleasure in saluting the young achievers here, all you students, um, including my daughter who's amongst you, Carmini, who's, who's uh, taken leave to join me here today. I suspect half the reason is she was curious about this hotel. Um, um, so I wish to express my appreciation to the organizers of this uh, uh, event and to say to you students that uh, like the Reynolds uh, fellowships that most of you have, I also received scholarships every step of my way to go through high school and university. Uh, so when I look back at my uh, own uh, path, I must note that I count myself among the lucky ones. <clears throat> My grandfather was about 16 when he was brought over from India by the British. Um, they began in 1860, and I think he would have come around 1886 or so. And uh, <clears throat> they worked as um, laborers in the sugarcane plantations. This is the Indian community. And Mahatma Gandhi described that bonded labor as akin to slavery. So those were the, uh, uh, my uh, starting point. My father was a bus driver, and we were, of course, very poor. So uh, against all odds of uh, multiple discrimination based on gender, race, and social class, I came to enjoy the benefits of education and human rights. And as I said, I did not do this alone. It's true that no law firm would hire me uh, when I completed law school, but that's not because my grades were bad, but it's because um, I was told bluntly that you cannot have a situation where white secretaries took instructions from a black person. And, and, and that's the only reason why I uh, started my own law firm, and some male colleagues thought that was very presumptuous. But I thought, what's the worst that could happen? I would have to close down. But I did continue as a lawyer for almost uh, 30 years. I want to say that, um, um, like Nadine, at age 16, I wrote an essay which dealt with the role of women uh, in South Africa um, in, uh, in educating children on human rights, and which, as it turned out, was, was indeed fateful. And after this essay was published in the local press, my community, which is, um, well, well, it was an enforced uh, slum for non-white people, this poor community raised funds in order to send this uh, young woman with potential to university. My people perhaps did not know that a right to education actually existed and that it was enshrined in international law, but they believed in education. They understood that it created parts out of poverty and out of discrimination. They were aware that it was the indispensable stepping stone towards achieving a better future. And today you are doing that uh, using your opportunities to create a better future globally for other people. I met with some of you, and this morning uh, a, a student told me about his work amongst HIV 
uh, sufferers here in South Africa. In the course of my life, I had the privilege to see and experience a complete transformation in my country and in South African society. Um, as we heard this morning, South Africa has one of the strongest constitutions in the world. And while it struggles, as many countries do, to turn legal rights into reality, um, that was such a pertinent question. How do we get South African society, ordinary people, to invest in the values of the Constitution? Um, so watching this amazing change over a single decade in my country and through a relatively peaceful evolution gives me great hope and makes me positive. Um, against this background, it is no surprise that when I read or recite Article 1 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, I intimately and profoundly feel the truth. And this is what that article says. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. These words resonate today as widely and movingly as they did in 1948 when the Universal Declaration, a towering human achievement, was adopted. The Declaration affirmed the force of ideas. It affirmed a vision of respectful and peaceful coexistence in the aftermath of utter brutality and destruction. Its words speak with timeless and unalterable force of both the power of rights and of our kinship in rights. Human empathy, common purpose, and solidarity directly emanate from our kinship in rights. It is at their confluence that we are able to empower ourselves and help others on their empowerment path. This convergence is particularly important when the going gets rough as it is now, in the face of human rights abuses and in times of economic hardship. Turmoil, human rights violations, and economic downturns are to be found at the roots of and compound the vulnerability of the most marginalized people in our societies. These people's attainment of dignified and fulfilling life conditions concern all of us. Our own achievements would only be half realized were we to leave our kin behind without a thought, without extending a helping hand, or without a determination to share our good fortune. The, uh, on December 10th last year, we observed the 60th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, I am truly privileged to lead the United Nations Human Rights Machinery. It is now uh, nine months since I am the High Commissioner, elected unanimously by all member states of the UN General Assembly. Uh, since my appointment, it has been constantly uh, pointed out to me by very many people and by states that I am the first High Commissioner from a developing country. 
And I agree that the, I come with a particular perspective, a particular experience of what it is like to suffer violations. And so this position is the possibility that I have been given to help alleviate the suffering of victims of human rights abuses. And this inspires me and makes my work both challenging and immensely rewarding. Um, I am conscious that every state in the world accedes to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Years ago, some argued that it's, it's an imposition from the North, it reflects values from the North. Not so now. I can tell you, um, having worked with member states, there is not a single member state that says they do not subscribe to these values. So here's our base for the universality of, uh, of rights. Um, as Nadine said, the right to education is now recognized. I hate to tell you that the right to health, particularly in the United States, is denied. It's considered a privilege. I delivered a number of speeches there and, and actually heard opposition to me saying that there is a right to health. One of my priorities as High Commissioner for Human Rights is making the avenues for the promotion and protection of human rights more accessible, more attractive and responsive. <clears throat> to this end, I will continue to reach out not only to victims of abuse and to like-minded states, thinkers, and activists, but to all those constituencies, particularly the young, whose aspirations to excellence in commitment make them our natural partners in the pursuit of human rights. Indeed, the leadership that I have been, that I have in mind, is not only that of remarkably committed organizations or individuals, affected groups, or enlightened states. I'm thinking rather of a more diffuse approach of the advocacy-enhancing leadership that has achieved historic humanitarian change. And one such example of, of a dramatic change would be the creation of the International Criminal Court, where I was a judge for five years uh, before I became high, high Commissioner. And the remarkable thing about the ad hoc tribunals and the International Criminal Court is that since Nuremberg, we have never had a mechanism to make people, particularly people in leadership positions who have, who have uh, committed serious crimes of uh, genocide and crimes against humanity and war crimes. We have never had a mechanism to make them accountable. Let me reiterate that when human dignity is undercut or denied by human rights violations, then such abuse affects all of us. In short, it is our collective duty in each and every walk of life to make the struggle for human rights a permanent task, a daily feature of our lives. Fulfilling this duty to the best of our abilities is the yardstick with which our net worth and our achievements should ultimately be measured. The full enjoyment of human rights is bound to happen only if many stakeholders, diverse in their composition, but like-minded in their objectives and actions, join together 
to affirm their goals and goodwill. I am aware that this is a highly demanding call, but as I said before, it is both exciting and immensely rewarding. I thank you and wish each of you the best of luck in all your future endeavors. Thank you. I think I'm dead on time here. Hi, thank you. Um, my name is Karen Raz, and I'm a Reynolds Social Entrepreneurship Fellow at NYU School of Law. And um, something in your speak speech really struck me where you talked about how your perspective from, as someone from a developing country has really impacted your work with the UN. And it strikes me because in law school I feel so often we're taught to, we're told to set aside our emotions and our empathy in order to think rationally and objectively. And so I'm interested in how empathy and emotional understanding has impacted your work as an attorney and as Commissioner for Human Rights at the UN. Well, thank you for your question, Karen. It's very topical now because I think uh, Judge Sodermeyer, who's the nominee, has to answer what she said about being a woman makes her a better judge. You know, I tend to agree, but I hope she gives the right answer there. <laughs> um, I, I found when, when I sat as a judge in the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, and heard testimony after testimony of sexual violence committed on Tutsi women in that conflict, that you needed a particular perspective to understand what they're saying to you. The prosecutor kept asking this particular woman who had described 19 gang rapes that had been perpetrated on her. He kept saying, I'm sorry, madam, to ask you this, but did he penetrate your vagina with his penis? And she said, it's not only that, that they did to me, it was much worse. I'm a mother, they were young boys, they were all on top of me, it's the things they said and did. Um, and it's that understanding of seeing it from the perspective of the people who experienced it and knowing what it would be like as a woman being treated like that, that I and my two colleagues created a new definition of rape, which is gender neutral and is moves away from this body part definition. So it's um, <clears throat> a physical invasion of a person of a sexual nature under coercive circumstances. Uh, and, and that uh, definition was then adopted in the Yugoslav Tribunal because there there was much more evidence of the sexual violence of boys and men. And so finally, uh, convictions of uh, rape constituting genocide in my court and rape uh, uh, performed on men. Um, and so I just gave you a little understanding of how we can use our particular experience. If you were not poor at all, I don't think you quite understand what it's like to be deprived of food. Um, so when I said that the member states are reminding me you come from the developing world, we expect you to have a particular understanding um, that we are trying to redress uh, human rights uh, or lack of uh, human rights norms in our country. We are trying and you have to appreciate what we are doing. And 
I also have to appreciate that there isn't uh, a single standard uh, flowing from north-south. It's a universal standard that everyone finds acceptance. So I, oh, I hope I uh, answered your question, Karen.